0: Thank you, Mark. If you have your Bible with you, let's go to Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to finish out the chapter today. We're going to look at verses 19 through 22. And the title that I've given to this passage of Scripture is Constructed in Christ. And so if you've got your Bible there with you, follow along as I read beginning in verse 19. Now, therefore, you are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God. And are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. In whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto an holy temple in the Lord. In whom you also are built together for an habitation of God through the Spirit. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, once again, it is our desire to sit at your feet and to listen to your word and to learn from your teaching. We firmly believe that this book is inspired, that although it was penned by human beings, your Holy Spirit is the one who gave them the words to write. And so when we hear this word, we hear your voice. And Lord, we want to know exactly what you've said and understand what you mean by it. Father, I pray and ask that you would help us to understand this this wonderful position that you have given to us in Christ and in the church and how our function is to be your habitation on this earth. Father, I pray and ask that you would help us to take in the whole scope of this scene, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. God is a builder. As you think about it, he is a master craftsman. That, that is evidence from the opening line of the Bible. It is what God reveals about himself in Scripture. The very first verse of the Bible tells us that God is the creator and the constructor of the world. And when we look at the entire revelation of God, we can't help but notice that God builds And among the many things that he does, he is a builder. As a matter of fact, I attribute uh, what human beings do and build and create and develop as uh, uh, the representation of their creator. That because God made us in his image and in his likeness, we have this desire and this drive to build things, to make things, to create things. Everywhere we look around we see that. Not only do we see it in the creation that God made as we look at the the shape of the mountains and the structures of the trees and the dynamics of water and air, but we see it in all the man-made things. The craftsmanship that is there in the woodwork and the ingenuity that is there in the automobiles and the aerodynamics of uh, aircraft. As we look around, there are evidences everywhere to God as a builder and a creator and how that is also manifest through us as his creation. It begins in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And we're introduced to God as creator and constructor. And then later we find God instructing Noah to build an ark. And Genesis chapter 6, God tells Noah that he wants him to build this large vessel and he gives him the dimensions and the materials and how it is to be built. We read a little further in the Bible and we find that God gives Moses instructions on how to build the tabernacle. As a matter of fact, we just are landing in that part of Exodus in our Sunday night study and, and God has told Moses the materials that he needs to collect and he gives him craftsmen who know how to sew and how to Fabricate and how to form and how to make these things. And God gives him a pattern. To follow, we read on in the Bible, and we find that God gives Solomon the instructions on how to build the temple. and the temple was one of the most magnificent buildings in the ancient world as it was constructed there in Jerusalem. They have dug down and found some of the original foundation stones, and those stones, some of them measure twelve feet by over thirty feet long. Think about. Think about the the ingenuity and, and the technique that had to be used to cut that stone, to transport that stone, to set that stone without the modern machinery that we have today. But again, God gave Solomon the instructions on how to build that. Furthermore, when God the Son becomes a man and comes to this earth in the flesh, It is no accident that he comes as a carpenter's son. And in that ancient world, the son of a carpenter would have apprenticed as a carpenter and would have learned the trade of his earthly father. And on top of that, Jesus made the statement in Matthew 16, I will build my church. And so all of this... Just sets the context to remind us that God is a builder. And so while Christ was on his way to the cross for redemption of the world, he was also laying the foundation for his church. He came to this earth to build something. He did not build an orphanage. He did not build a hospital. He did not build an academy. He did not build anything other than a church. But believe me, it is a masterwork in ephesians chapter 2 verses 19 through 22 that we just read it's as if the apostle paul pulls out the blueprints and shows us god's building plans for the church right the entire new testament is dedicated to the church uh, if you go through the old testament you will find that there are 50 chapters in the old testament That give reference to the tabernacle, either in their entirety or partiality, but no less than 50 chapters are given to the construction, the description, the function of the tabernacle. I would say to you that all 260 chapters of the New Testament are either written to the church or about the church. And so God has been doing this work. It began with Christ. I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. As he's on his way to the cross for redemption, he is laying the foundation for the church. And he sets the apostles up to continue that work on until he returns. And here in the middle of the New Testament, the Apostle Paul says, hey, let me show you guys something. Let me pull out the blueprints for you. Let let me give you some details about this thing that you are in, this thing that God is constructing called the church. It all begins with the forming of a new household in verse 19. He says you're no more foreigners, no more strangers, but you're fellow citizens uh, and uh, and that you are fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God. In verse 19, Paul uses the word household uh, in, in reference to the church as a transition from the metaphor of the church as a body to the metaphor of the church as a building. God uses metaphors in Scripture oftentimes to help us understand things. He uses the lamb. He uses agriculture. He uses other object lessons to help us understand a spiritual truth. Some of the metaphors that he has used for the church to help us understand that is that the church is a body, it functions like a body, it has body parts or members that are individual but function together, but it also is like a building. Notice that in the previous verses he uses descriptive language that can be applied to both. For instance, Ephesians 2.10, it says, For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus she says that talking about a body or a building it can talk about both And he goes on in verses 14 through 16, and I'll just lift out some of these phrases. He has broken down the middle wall of partition between us for to make in himself of two one new man and that he might reconcile both unto God in one body. And so in this chapter, Paul begins talking about the church as a body. And then verse 19, he uses this word household to transition us to start thinking about it like a building. You say, well, is that normal? Well, I would just point out to you that maybe in our country, in our short history, that that is not something that we often do. But in English history, families were often identified by their house. For example, the royal family that is in power at this time is known as the House of Windsor. And that is because they are associated with a family line and a castle. And so, in the New Testament, the church is described as both a body. We find it at the end of chapter 1. And he hath put all things under his feet and given him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body. And then we see the church identified as a building, like in 1 Corinthians 3, 9. For we are laborers together with God. You are God's field. You are God's building. And so what we see first in this text is that God has formed this new household. He has taken Jew and he has taken Gentile and in Christ he has created a new family, a new body, a new building through which he is going to operate and manifest himself. From there the Apostle Paul shows us the foundation of the house. In verse 20, the text says, And you are built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. After Paul establishes that the church is a house, he goes on to describe the foundation of that house. If you know anything about building, you understand that the foundation comes first, and that the foundation is important, and that if you have a crack in your wall, oftentimes the problem is not in the wall, it is in the foundation. If you remember, Jesus used a parable about a wise man who built a house, and he dug down to the bedrock, and he laid a foundation of stone, and when the storm came it didn't shake the house but the foolish man built his house upon the sand without a solid foundation and when the storms came it destroyed the house and so the very most important part of the church is its foundation as a matter of fact if you are comparing Christianity to other religions and wondering why there is an exclusivity to Christianity where we say you've got to come through Christ there is no other way no other religion measures up just look at At their foundation. They do not have the same foundation that Christianity has. Christianity is founded upon Jesus Christ. There is no one who has ever been like Jesus before in all of history. And no one has ever been as documented as much as Christ has in all of history. And no religion has had the impact that Christianity has had in all of history. And it all goes back to the foundation. And so Paul says, I want you to understand something about this church that you're in, this church that you make up. It has a foundation that is sure. It begins with the cornerstone, which is Christ. We need to note that 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 had been a messianic prophecy for nearly 1,000 years. That the Messiah would be a cornerstone. Now, as we understand the revelation of Scripture and the progressive nature of that, God begins to reveal pieces of the picture to them early on. And sometimes they get a glimpse in Genesis or in Exodus or in Psalms or in Isaiah. And as it's coming, they they know that it's significant. They know that it's talking about something that God's going to do in the future, but they don't understand it in its full detail. And so here in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul reaches back and he says, let me connect a dot for you. You are familiar with this millennia-old prophecy about a messiah that he would be a cornerstone in fact we find it for the first time in the bible in psalm 118 verse 22 the stone which the builders refused has become the headstone of the corner and so that's the first introduction and so what they are being told is that this this stone-like figure if you will is not going to be recognized by those who are in Charge. It's going to be rejected at its first inspection. But that it is going to turn out to become the actual cornerstone of whatever this structure is. Again, in Isaiah 28, God gives a little more uh, enlightenment about this. And he says in Isaiah twenty-eight sixteen, Therefore, thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I lay in Zion for a foundation, a stone. A tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. Now in light of the New Testament we, we understand everything that they're saying but in Isaiah's day uh, they didn't fully understand that. But what God is saying is I'm going to do something in Zion, in Israel, in Jerusalem, in the headquarters of my operation on planet earth. And so they get that. Something's going to happen big. They kept expecting that. That's why there was the triumphal entry when Jesus entered in Jerusalem before he was crucified. But then he says I- I'm going to lay a foundation stone. Well foundation stone is enigmatic of something new being built it is something that is coming up out of the ground that has never been before and so it is a foundation they didn't fully understand that at the time but now we understand Jesus was going to do something new here's an interesting phrase a tried stone what does that mean well it's been proven it's been put to the test. It measures up. It has no deficiencies. It has no faults to it. And it is a precious cornerstone. Hey, you know our foundation is made out of non-valuable materials, right? The aggregate that we use is the rocks that you can dig out of the ground in abundance. It's the rocks that you get frustrated with when you're trying to plant your garden and they are just in abundance supply. But God says, "Hey, let me tell you something about this cornerstone. It's not just sure, it's not just solid, it's not just proven. It is precious. It is like a jewel that is of great value." And then the final word he says is It's a sure foundation. It's not going to be moved. It's not going to go anywhere. It is solid. These are what I would call proverbial prophecies. They're proverbs, right? It's a proverb. The stone that the builders rejected has now become the chief cornerstone. That's a proverb. But it's also a prophecy. In fact, Jesus, in his earthly ministry, uh, referenced these when he was rejected. And so you will find him quoting Psalm 118 in Matthew 21, 42, Mark 12, 10, and Luke 20, 17. So again, he is giving them the light. He is flashing the light at them saying, Hey, let me tell you what you're doing here. You're fulfilling the proverbial prophecy that you're the one who's rejecting me and I'm going to be the cornerstone. The significance of the cornerstone in ancient construction so, what, what's the big deal? Well, what do you mean? Well, I, don't know, I don't know what you mean by cornerstone. We, we don't operate this way. Well, in ancient construction, the cornerstone was the first piece of the building that was set. And so the cornerstone would set the elevation or the grade, right? How high is this going to be? At what level is it going to set? It would also set the square of the building, the, the orientation. Of it. You ever been on a piece of property and saw a building that looked askewed and you thought, why didn't they orientate that properly to the surrounding? And so that cornerstone would set the orientation of the building. It would also set the level, right? So that you don't get into a leaning tower of Pisa, right? Where uh, things are going off balance as they go up. And it would set the plumb of the building, that it was vertically straight. Uh, And and when it was all lined up, you know what they call it when it's all lined up? You know what contractors and builders call that? True. Isn't it interesting? Isn't it amazing how God's given us these little clues all over the place where we use that type of language today and we know what we're talking about? And he goes back in Scripture and says, I've got a cornerstone that I'm going to set for you. One of the prophets says there's a plumb line that's dropped from heaven that everything is measured against. And when we get it all lined up, it's true. It's the true church. It's the true body. It's the true building of believers. Uh, Today, in place of that cornerstone, we do use something like it. You may have heard of batter boards. You may not have heard of them, but maybe you've seen them. If you walk onto a job site where they're getting ready to lay a foundation or dig the footers, sometimes you will see an L-shaped structure in the corner. It's just a couple of 2 befores that are nailed up, uh, three verticals and, and a couple of horizontals. But what that is used for is the frame of reference for that entire building site. And so off of that corner, off of those batter boards, they will pull their elevation so that they know how dig deep to dig the foundation, so that they know how tall the building will be, where it will be. They will also pull the orientation off of it. They, they pull everything off of that frame of reference. And so that's what Jesus is in the foundation. He is the cornerstone. He's the first piece, the most important piece that is laid. And he sets he sets the, the lines for everything else that is to be built upon it. But not only in this foundation do we have Jesus as the chief cornerstone, but we have some foundational stones. Did you see those in verse 20? It says, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and... The prophets. And so it would begin with the cornerstone being set, and everything would be lined off of that. But then there would be other foundational stones that would be set upon that before you got to the superstructure. The apostles had a unique role in the foundation of the church during this time period. These guys that we read about, like Peter, like Paul, uh, like John, they were not functioning as. Ordinary run of the mill church members. They had a special dispensation. They were called apostles. That is, ones who were hand selected by Jesus and delegated a certain power and authority to fulfill a purpose at his beckon. And so Jesus selected 12 apostles and he used them to lay the foundation of the church. According to Ephesians 4.11 and 1 Corinthians 12.28, they were the first order. It says that he set some first apostles and prophets and then evangelists, pastors, teachers, so on and so forth. So there's a distinct order. They don't fit in anywhere else. They don't fit in up here at the top. They fit in down here at the foundation. And by the way, according to Revelation 21.14, there were only 12 apostles now, that word is used in some church traditions today. They, they call the office of apostle. They believe that there's something called apostolic succession and that, that Peter and James and John and the rest of the apostles each had a successor that they named and they passed on their powers to them like Elijah and Elisha, and that that has continued on for 2,000 years and that there are some apostles in the church today. If you ever meet one, my advice to you is Run. Get away from them, because they are not apostles. So how can you be so adamant about that? Revelation 21:14, describing New Jerusalem, says that there are 12 foundations which are the 12 apostles. Not 12 of the apostles, the 12 apostles. That language in the scripture is important. it's the definite article. It is telling us that there were only 12 apostles and that's why we see those guys doing stuff that we don't do today that's why Peter is able to restore sight to blind men or help people or raise people up to walk that couldn't walk before or even raise the dead like he, he, he did with uh, uh, with uh, the widow Tabitha in Joppa we find that they had a special dispensationary power that was given to them by Jesus because they were laying the foundation for the church how else was God to validate? validate? validate that this was his work if he didn't have these apostles who could perform supernatural signs to validate the message that they were preaching and teaching. But here's the other foundational role of the apostles and the prophets. They wrote the New Testament. They wrote the New Testament. When you go through the 27 books of the New Testament, they are written by apostles or prophets not all were apostles mark was not an apostle luke was not an apostle but they were prophets used of god to write the scriptures hey that's the foundation of the new testament church that's why when john penned the last word of revelation the bible was complete because the foundation was laid and now the building is ready to go on top of that foundation once you lay the foundation you don't lay a foundation with every story that you build up there is one foundation that is laid and then the building is built on top of that that brings us to the framing of the house which is described in verse 21 in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto an holy temple in the lord after the apostles all other Christians are built upon this foundation as the framing of the church or the superstructure of the church. And so you're built on the foundation of Christ and the apostles. I'm built on the foundation of Christ and the apostles. They were built on that foundation in the 1st century, 2nd century, all the way up to the 21st century, and all the way until Jesus comes back. We are built on that foundation, and we are the, the, the building material, if you will. But notice, we are more than just random building blocks uh, that are placed uh, as we are framed together. The Bible uses this word here, fitly framed. It reminds me of what is said in 1 Corinthians 12, 18, that God has set every member. It says that he has set the members, every one of them, in the body as it hath pleased him. So think about this. Every member, every believer in Christ, every person that is in the church was hand-selected and placed by God where he wanted you. That's powerful. That's powerful. Hey, by the way, do you know that's why, as a pastor, uh, I, I don't expect every Christian in the community to join my church? because I understand that God has his church and that he may need to take that person and place them in that congregation and he needs to place this one in that congregation and he places these in our congregation. We're not in competition with any other churches. We understand that if each Christian is following the will of the Lord, he's going to place them right where he wants them. He's going to select them and he's going to put Them there. And so God does this beautiful work of framing us together. Furthermore, that word fitly is only used one other time in the entire Bible, and it's used by the same author in the same book. Check it out Ephesians chapter 4, verse 16. Remember, I told you that the church is described as both a body and a building. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 16, he is describing the church as a body. Check it out, verse 11, and he gave some, here's the order, apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors, some teachers, for the perfecting or the completing of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Drop down to verse 16. From whom the whole body fitly, here it is, fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth according to the effectual working and the measure of every part maketh increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. And so here we find that this word fitly that is describing the way that we are framed together is much tighter than, than, than a, a, a 45 joint or a miter compound. It is more like the way your body is put together with the bone and the muscle and the tendons and the ligaments and how those things are working together and they are bound to one another and it is that, that, that closeness to one another that, that makes them function to the fullest of their capacity. And so you are hand-selected and you are the handcrafted workmanship of God. And he's fitly framed you into his building. He's placed you where he wants you. And he wants you to have this tight, close, jointed relationship with the other members of the church. And then the final aspect is the function of the house. And we find that in verse 22 of our text in whom you also are builded together for an habitation of God through the Spirit. In verse 22, we get the function of the house. It's it's not just a display for the handiwork of God, right? Sometimes things are made that way by craftsmen. They're just displaying their hand work, Or sometimes there's a model that is built for people just to come and look at and to see and appreciate or, or, or to consider them uh, to hire for their own work. But God is not just making a display. He's not just demonstrating his hand crafting. He is actually building his own habitation. He is building a dwelling place for himself the place where he wants to reside what a privileged purpose we serve as the bible says the most high dwells not in temples made with hands but it he dwells in the hearts of believers think about this verse in this context what know you not that your body is The temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which you have of God, and you are not your own, for you are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. You and I, friends, are the temple or the house or the habitation of God. Dr. Lehman Strauss, old-time Bible teacher, said the most sacred spot on earth is not a towering cathedral with stained glass windows, but it is the believer's heart where God has come to dwell. And you might say, this is all good information, but what is the point? I mean, I understand it's helpful to see the blueprints and to know that God formed a household and that he laid a foundation that is sure and that he has framed us together and and that we become the the dwelling place of God. But, But, Justin, really, what do I take away from this? What is it that I can carry out of this church today from this text of Scripture that will change my life? And the point is in verse 21. We are to be a holy temple. We focused on the framing when I read that verse the first time, but can I read it to you again? Ephesians 2.21, In whom? In Christ. All the building, all of us, are fitly, close-jointedly, framed together, growing unto an holy temple in the Lord. That's the goal. The goal is that we're a holy temple. The goal is that you and I reflect the holiness of the God who saved us, the God who placed us in the church, the God who built us as his habitation. But can I tell you, holiness is a struggle. Or am I the only one? Isn't it strange that we have a holy God and a holy Bible and we're filled up with the Holy Ghost? But so few Christians are holy. Now look, I I ain't mad at you. I'm not cross out at you. I look in the mirror every day and I realize holiness is a battle. Holiness is a struggle. We live in a world that is full of opposition, that wants to make us unholy, wants to attract us with the unholy things, wants us to think unholy, wants us to feel unholy, wants us to speak unholy, wants us to live unholy. Don't you feel that pressure in your own life? Sometimes it may be subtle, but it's constant, it's persistent. And it's so easy to find yourself reacting in an unholy manner. Let me tell you something. The great privilege that you and I have is that God has made us holy so that we could be his holy dwelling. Here are Paul's words of admonition to the church of Corinth on this matter. I want to read them to you from 2 Corinthians 6. And I believe that they're the words that we need to carry with us out of this place as we think about how God has constructed us in Christ and what he's constructed us for. He says, what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Wherefore, come out from among them the lost world, the idolaters, the unsaved and be ye separate saith the lord and touch not the unclean or the unholy thing and i will receive you and will be a father unto you and you shall be my sons and daughters saith the lord almighty here's the message it's practical but it's not popular you and i can't go along with the world We've got to be comfortable being separate. We've got to be okay being different. The great tragedy in the churches today is that we have tried to become likable by the world. We don't want any headlines written about us, what us crazy Baptists are doing down here. We, we want to be a palatable Christianity. Let me tell you something Christianity's never been palatable to the world. It's always been rejected. It's always been spit out by those who don't know Christ. And so let's determine to be what God constructed us to be. Let's be that holy temple that God can dwell in in this unholy world. Would you bow with me? So we bow our heads, close our eyes for just a moment. There are any number of things that we could say to describe what holiness is in a very practical way. But the problem with making a list of what holiness is and isn't is that it turns into legalism. That's why God gave you the Holy Spirit. That's why Ephesians 2.22 says we're the habitation of God through the Spirit. What you and I need to do is be sensitive to the Holy Spirit of God. Let his still, small voice convict us, restrain us, redirect us, calm us, humble us, chastise us when necessary. Are you in tune with the Holy Spirit of God? Do you ever respond? Do you ever change action, direction, or behavior because of that Conscious conviction of the Lord. Oh, my friends, that's why God gave you the Holy Spirit. Not that you could go around and make a show and act like you've got some sort of superpower. It is so that you can be holy unto the Lord. Let's pray. Let's tune our hearts to him this morning. Oh, Lord, we admit and know that unholiness is our bent. Is the direction that we grow. And it is only by your grace that we have been saved and made holy and by your sanctifying process that you are redirecting us toward holiness. But every time the wind blows, it blows us back towards unholiness. Every time the pressure comes, it seems to bend us toward unholiness. Lord, our desire is to be what you are constructing us to be and to allow your Holy Spirit to lead us and to guide us, to convict us and to constrain us and to make us more like Christ, to not be worried about standing out in this world, but that we might truly be a holy dwelling place for you, God. Only you can do the work of holiness. We cannot chart it on a graph. We cannot catalog it we cannot codify it we can't write a law that makes us holy but we have your holy spirit inside of us who can and so lord i pray and ask that you would make us sensitive to your holy spirit and i pray and ask that as we go out from this place this day that this week we would grow in holiness and i pray that in jesus name amen